0: Isn't it great that the Bible is not a compilation of sermons, but includes songs in it? Isn't that, it's good, isn't it? It's for a reason, isn't it? We don't just gather here and preach God's word, we sing, because songs do something. They're powerful. And I'm, I'm amazed by songwriters. I've tried it, songwriting, it's not easy. I, I dabble in music. I think all preachers wanna be musicians and we're, it's like all basketball players wanna be rappers. You know, it's, it's the same thing. Uh, and all you know, rappers wanna be basketball players. That's, that's just how it is, and uh, it's, it's a gift. It's a gift that you have, and um, I've said that before, but uh, thank you for sharing your gift with us and with the world, Kyle, and for ministering to us. Songs say it in a way that uh, we just can't verbalize it sometimes, and how many of you love music in here? I love music. We got musicians here. I I see people here who make a living in music as well, and we're just so blessed to live in this town where music uh, thrives and where we are able to embrace music and know that God wants to redeem all music and consecrate music for the purpose of redemption. Logan Rogers was talking about in that video that he loves music. He makes a living in music. And and that friends are doing music things in order to uh, grow and thrive in our community. So thank God for music and for songs. And I'm so grateful for Aaron and for his leadership. I pointed to Aaron. Where is he? He's not there. There he is with his Sterling in his lap. Uh, for his leadership musically as well at our church. Woodmont has a long history of music in worship, and I pray that we will continue to pursue what God has for us in music. Now let's go to some prose with that introduction, and let me talk for a little bit about the Bible, okay? We're going to continue to journey through the book of Isaiah. How many songs have been written from text in Isaiah? Lots of great songs in the poetic text of Isaiah. I'm I'm currently writing my sermons at home. I don't know, Dr. Sherman, where you wrote your sermons, but I write all of mine at home. I can't get anything done here because my FOMO, my fear of missing out, right? Every time I hear someone in the lobby, I come running out, who's here? You know, I wanna talk to folks. So I have Isaiah commentaries strewn about uh, the dining room table, which is my home office desk. And uh, our four-year-old, whose name also happens to be Isaiah, has been able now to recognize his name. He knows how to spell Isaiah, which I bet half of you probably can't spell Isaiah correctly. There's a lot of vowels in there. It doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, but he, he's able to see that. So he comes into my office uh, this week while I was writing and he said, how many Isaiah Bibles do you have? <laughs> and There's like five or six sitting around. Uh, it's, it's been a great experience for me to take a deep dive into this passage, into this book, this amazing book of Isaiah, and I'm willing to bet a lot of you have heard a lot of sermons, okay? Carlton Carter back there has been a member here since 1958. He's heard a lot of sermons. I'd be willing to bet that that you have not heard a sermon on Isaiah chapter 21 to 23 before. Maybe you've heard one on like a little passage from 21 or 22, uh, but we're gonna try to cover 21 to 23 today. I was talking with one of our Bible study leaders uh, this, uh, yesterday and she was like, man, Nathan, what are you doing to us with this text? You know, Trying to teach this in our, our Sunday morning Bible study groups and I said, yeah, you should try writing a sermon on it, okay, it's, uh, it's not easy stuff. But here's the thing, all scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, and it's useful. And as I continue to dive into it and think about these uh, words in Isaiah 21 to 23, I'm amazed at how much meat and life-giving, you know, words there are in this passage. So we are gonna walk through this idea of God being the Lord of the nations, that he's sovereign over every nation, tribe, and tongue, and that history is really his story. I know that's cheesy, and songwriters try to avoid cheesy stuff, I know, but it's true. All of history is not mandated by world powers. It's not the summary of world leaders. It's the summary of what God is doing, because he is sovereign. That means he controls every aspect of human history. We may know that intellectually, but it's really important to get that in our guts, to make it part of our story as we just sang uh, with Kyle that, that God's story needs to be our story and our song praising our Savior all the day long. So we're, we're, what the, we're learning through this section as I, in Isaiah is that what we see of the big picture is so infinitely small. We see like a mosaic. You know what a mosaic is? Anybody been to Italy and seen these great mosaics, you know, uh, if you look up closely at a mosaic, you can't really tell what it is. There's a lot of little tiles and little pieces, but when you step back from it, you see what the artist intended for the mosaic. We see uh, the world like this. We see about two inches in front of our face, and God's the one who's putting it all together, working all things together for our good and for his glory that's kind of the theme of this section of Isaiah. It's a beautiful mosaic that he's putting together. Last week, the prophet Isaiah showed us how God is ruling over all the nations by giving us five representative examples, five different oracles against Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, and Egypt. All of them are going to be you know, reduced to nothing eventually, but God still offers this amazing grace to them. If only they would put their trust in him. His plan is not to wipe out all the nations except Jerusalem. His plan is to make all things new, all things new. So what we see is only a little snippet of, begin, but God's doing this great work. That was the first set of five oracles, Isaiah 13 to 20, okay? Isaiah chapter 13 to chapter 20, five oracles against five nations. And that section's real clear. It says, here's an oracle against Babylon. Here is an oracle against Philistia. Here is an oracle against Moab. This next five oracles are a little vague. They're a little mysterious. We don't really get a clear picture. We kind of have to read behind the line, between the lines and see what's going on behind the scenes here. And the point is because Isaiah's already leaning into this apocalyptic vision of where history is going. He's less concerned with the immediate events around him because he's more concerned with the eternal hope of future glory that God has promised to us. And next week on May 2nd, we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper together as we lean into the full apocalyptic vision in uh, Isaiah 24 to 27 about the glorious day of the Lord when history itself will come to a conclusion. So we're going to see today that Isaiah is leaning into that uh, eternal perspective and that vision. He's not really concerned with what's going on earthly, uh, politically, not that anyone in our world is too concerned with politics, right? I'm sure you don't know anyone. I'm sure none of you are uh, ever losing sleep over politics, right? No one worries too much about that anymore. That's good to know. <laughs> what, without a future vision, without an eternal perspective to guide us, it is very possible for these worldly circumstances to grip our hearts. We're left to despair when we read the headlines without knowing what God is up to and where all this is headed. But our hope is secure. One of the verses I keep coming back to during you know, all of 2020 and, and even now is Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. How many of you need an anchor for your souls today? A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, the curtain that was torn in two when Jesus Christ died, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, into the holy of holies on our behalf in order to bring us to God. So if you're in need of hope today, like I'm in need of hope, I pray that as we dive into this text, we're gonna hear Isaiah speak the truth of hope in the supremacy of God over all, over all the world, over all our sin, over all of our anxiety and worry. Let's take a look first at what Isaiah sees in this vision and then we'll talk about how that vision is relevant to us today. So let's take a look at the first oracle, Isaiah 21 verses one to two. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah chapter 21, verses one and two. Miles, do we have that in there? It's okay if we don't. It's an oracle against the, concerning the wilderness of the sea, it says. As whirlwinds and the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. It's a stern vision is told to me, Isaiah says in verse 2. We're going to find out in verse 9 that Isaiah is talking about Babylon here. Again, he's, he's referring another oracle to Babylon. And it's not good news. It's a stern vision. Sometimes we like to think that the Bible is, you know, only showing us that, oh, God wants good things for you. And if if you follow God, you'll have your best life now and everything will be sunshine and everything will be great and each day will be better than the next. But that's not the world we live in, is it? That's never been God's plan. God's ways are infinitely higher than our ways and we can't begin to fathom them and we know that in this world, Jesus said what? You will have tribulation. It's not always going to be rainbows and sunshine. And, and why is that? Because God, again, is, is working in a way that we can't fathom. He doesn't do things the way we think he should. Isaiah's focusing on that future hope, but before we get to that future hope, we're going to go through some stuff. And God shows Isaiah that he's going to destroy Babylon. And that doesn't sit well with Isaiah. We would expect him to say, good, get those guys. They're bad dudes. That's not what he says. Look at verse 3. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I'm bowed down so that I cannot hear. I'm dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. He longs for a twilight when you can rest from your labors and the cool of the day starts to set in, but that's not what he gets. Instead, he gets a ruined, destroyed Babylon. Why does that upset him? Because Babylon's the only thing standing in between Judah and Assyria. Assyria is that massive empire, remember, that's sweeping across the fertile crescent, just wiping out kingdoms left and right. And they're on their way to Judah, and Isaiah's like, come on, Babylon, you got you to get these guys. And God says, yeah, I'm going to destroy Babylon. And Isaiah's like, oh no, that was our last hope. But the truth is, is that they're just the wilderness of the sea. What does that mean? Wilderness is another word for desert in uh, the Hebrew, and, and both the desert and the sea were terrifying places for people in the ancient Near East. Remember Samuel Taylor Coleridge said, uh, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink on the sea. And, and the sea, they believe, had monsters and storms and all these things. And the desert, we know there's nothing to sustain us in the desert either. So the, the truth is that Babylon has nothing to offer us. They were always a false, empty promise to begin with. They weren't worth putting their hope in in the first place. So the question for us is, who are we looking to for our sustenance? Where do we find our sustaining hope? Who are we looking to to provide us with our life? On our Wednesday night series, we've been talking about how a lot of people in our culture look to their work to provide them with sustenance and with their life, with their identity Therefore, they worship their work, which is a problem because only God is worthy of our worship. Do we look to our family to define us? Do we look to our nation, our government to define us? We know that all of these things will ultimately fail us in the end. The next oracle starts in chapter 21, verse 11 the oracle concerning Duma in Hebrew. Duma, what is that? It, it, it's a Hebrew word that means silence. The oracle concerning silence. But in the original Hebrew, there's no vowels, right? They just kind of have to know where the vowel should come in. And the Hebrew for Duma is almost the exact same as the name of a neighboring kingdom, Edom. So instead of Edom, it's dumah. It's, the vowel is a little bit different. The point is that God is sometimes Silent. Concerning Edom, God will be silent. It seems like God in my life, I don't know about you, but God is, is, it seems like often silent at times when I am most desperate. When I cry out in anguish, like Job in chapter 31, he says, Lord, please answer me. And, and he hears silence. And then finally, God speaks from the whirlwind to him. But in my life, that's, that's typically how it works too. And again, what does that mean that God is silent? Uh, When we're desperate, keep reading the rest of verse 11. It says, one is calling to me from Seir. That was the capital city and another name for Edom. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? Twice, this Edomite asked the prophet who, back in, in the first oracle, God set Isaiah as a watchman to look for what's gonna happen to Babylon So this Edomite says, hey, prophet, tell us when's this darkness going to end? You know, John, uh, we know of the cross in in ancient, uh, you know, one of the early church fathers talks about the dark night of the soul. I know several of you from talking to you have felt like you've been in an unending night. That's what these Edomites feel like. And they ask the prophet, they say, when is the night going to end? And that's a a desperate request because he keeps keeps repeating it. What's going on? How long is this night gonna last? Do you see an end coming? Is there any sign of light on the horizon? Can you see the sun coming up from the wall? But the answer comes back as a non-answer, really. How frustrating is that? Uh, Look at verse 12, the watchman says, morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. In recovery circles, you, you will know this if you've ever been to a, a celebrate recovery meeting or an AA meeting, but there's a phrase that, that we use in recovery that says, what, what does it say, Ron? Keep coming, keep coming back. Keep coming back. When everybody comes for their chip, right? And they say, anybody got six months of sobriety, they, they say, come up and get their chip. They say, keep coming back. Anybody got one year, keep coming back. And it's a, a matter of staying with it and sticking it out, which is one of the hardest disciplines of all. But it is a discipline, and like all disciplines, I know we have you know, people who train. Rob, you do a lot of training, you know, and, and that, that training is a discipline, and it leads to good results. Disciplines lead to godly results. Training points us to something greater, and the discipline of sticking it out shows us that when God is silent, If we remain faithful, we know that we just read in Hebrews 6, we have a sure and certain hope. We know where it's headed. We don't know how long it's gonna be. We have tribulation, but take heart, for in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, for Jesus has overcome the world. We know he's gonna win in the end, but until that time, we keep training. We keep disciplining ourselves to stick it out. Let me just give you a few quick thoughts here on this is a little free mini-sermon. What this tells us about when God is silent. Three keys for when God is silent that I see in this text here, or two that I see, and then one that I just am, am making up for free. Uh, remember first that just because you perceive God as silent doesn't mean that he's not moving. It doesn't mean that he's not working. You you may go through these long stretches. Alec Motyer, in one of my Isaiah Bibles, my Isaiah commentary, says the Lord's program is carried forward not only in great dramatic events, but also in the regular forward moving of time. In huge periods when nothing seems to be happening at all. God is moving. Even when you don't see it or feel it, more importantly... He never stops moving. He never sleeps, the Psalms tell us. He never slumbers. He doesn't need it. He's always moving, working out his good purposes. Trust in that. Second, while we wait, how do we wait? Keep coming back. The answer from the watchman, keep coming back. It's it's that beautiful phrase from recovery. Don't give up on the program. Don't give up on the program that God is doing. It's moving, so don't Give up on it. Stick with it. I'm not a patient person by nature in my fallen flesh. I was talking to someone today about how traffic has picked up now that people are going back to work. And uh, I've told you before, man, I, I got to confess, you know, to my kids and everybody else, I get frustrated in traffic. When we went to lunch last Wednesday, Brad said, I'll drive because you need to practice riding with other people, because you said you always like to drive because you have control issues. And I said, that's true, I'm driving. (laughs) I'd already pulled the car around, I knew he was gonna do that. (laughs) The point is that when these times of discipline, we have to commit in our, our fallen flesh says, I quit, I give up, I'm sick of it. But in our renewed flesh, in the new self, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, We say, Lord, I'm choosing to live by faith, not by sight. I'm gonna stick it out. I'm gonna keep coming back. To wait and watch is a discipline and it will not disappoint in the end. Third and finally, God is not completely silent to us. This one's not really in the text, but this is true. God is not silent to us. We have a word from God. It's a written revelation that is a holy and beautiful gift to us. It's not a how-to manual. It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. It's a grand, sweeping story. I love that word story, Kyle, that you use in that song. It's a meta-narrative. It's it's, it's a, a sweeping picture of who God is and what he's doing and who we are in light of all of that. It's a beautiful testament to who the Lord is. All of it, from Genesis to Revelation, completely important. The watchman doesn't ignore the Edomite. The Edomite says, how long will this night last? He doesn't just turn his back and give him the silent treatment. No, he says, yeah, I see morning, I see night too, just keep coming back. He gives him a word. It's not always the word we want. Isaiah 21 to 23 is not the word that I wanted, but we're, we're sticking with it because God has spoken, and we're blessed to receive that gift of his written revelation of himself. Let's go to the word. When I'm dry, when I feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling, when I dive into God's word, I always find it, always, to be life-giving. Not always what I wanna hear, but it gives me true life. Romans 15, uh, verse four, uh, Paul says to the church in Rome, whatever was written in former days, Was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We find a way to endure through Holy Scripture. If you find that you are having trouble with the discipline of sticking it out, then get in the Word. The world looks everywhere for answers, often wishing that something is going to help, right? But we have the Word of God. Again, not as a encyclopedia of answers, but as this beautiful picture of who God is and of himself and how he's making all things new. We got to keep going. Third oracle, look at 2113, the oracle concerning Arabia. Again, there's a little play on words here. The word for Arab in Hebrew also means evening. So the oracle in the evening is really one way to translate that. That means the sun is setting on Arabia. Their time is over. They're they're really these tribes out in the remote deserts and they've been safe because they've been in the, the remote desert, but their time is coming to an end. One of the main themes here in this section of Isaiah, again, is that all these worldly kingdoms made by human hands are gonna pass away eventually. That includes the United States. Am I stepping on toes? The United States is not forever, it's not. But the sun will never set on the kingdom of God. That's important to remember. I'm not wanting the United States to pass away, I'm not saying that, I love this country and love the fact that I get to live here, it's amazing, but it's not forever and it's not my eternal home. As Christians, we're reminded that this world is not our home. Yes, we're sent into it for a time, but our first allegiance is to a greater city. Philippians 3.20, I keep coming back during election season in 2020, I kept coming back to this. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Whatever happens in our country, we can stand firm because our citizenship is in heaven first and foremost. That's very encouraging to me. Whatever befalls the nations of our world, our kingdom is secure forever Fourth oracle, Isaiah turns away from the pagan Gentile people of Arabia, these desert tribes, and he points the finger at God's own people. Look at 22 verse 1, the oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. I've heard Valley of Vision before because it's a collection of Puritan prayers that were assembled 1975. I have a copy in my office. Beautiful. I didn't know it came from Isaiah 22, I'll be honest. What's the Valley of Vision? If you keep reading, we find out that it's Jerusalem. That can't possibly be Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on a hill. We know that. The Psalms of Ascent, as they sang up to Jerusalem, they had to go up to it. How could it be a valley? Well, we know that they were supposed to be a city on a hill, but over the years, their faith had grown stale and complacent. God had called them to be his special family, starting thousands of years ago with Abram and and Sarai, He's going to create this special people. And even when they messed up, they they ended up in slavery. God delivered them miraculously out of Egypt by his mighty hand and outstretched arm. And then he led them to Sinai and gave them the law to make them holy and set apart. And then he delivered them into the promised land and drove out the mighty warriors before them and gave them a land flowing with milk and honey from which they should serve as a conduit of God's blessing to the world. And yet they forgot about all that. Look at verse 11b in chapter 22. But you did not look to him who did it, who did all that for thousands of years, or see him who planned it long ago. This was God's plan from the beginning of time for you. And you said, yeah, we're okay. Their vision was limited to a valley where you can't see anything. My house is in a valley and you, you can't really see anything around it because of their own self-seeking comforts. They live in a bowl of shallowness. They're no longer living for the great mission of God, the great vision of God himself, but they're living for the weekend. Look at chapter uh, 22, verse 13. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. This is how you guys are acting. You're just living for the weekend. You're not living for anything beyond yourselves. There's no eternal perspective. You're trapped in your own valley. Finally, the Lord shows Isaiah an oracle, the fifth one, about Tyre. Tyre was a major cosmopolitan port city. It was a major city in the Phoenician Empire, on the Mediterranean coast. A lot of merchants coming through there. It was a wealthy city, a lot of people from around the world. And uh, look at verse 23 uh, verse one, chapter 23 verse one. The oracle concerning Tyre, wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. So Isaiah starts this section talking about Babylon and he ends it talking about Tyre. And between those two kingdoms, all kingdoms of the world are represented. Babylon represents this ruthless power and dominant culture where we're gonna just dominate everybody. And Tyre represents this, seductive nature where they try to coerce people out of their money. I think about marketing, you know, some of the ploys that we hear in our world that are just aimed at separating us from our money. That's kind of how Tyre was. And combined, we see that that these are the kingdoms of humanity today. The kingdom of humanity is one of money and power and ego and temporary pleasure, fleeting success, that does not last. Our enemy would love nothing more than for Christians to buy into the kingdoms of Babylon and Tyre, to give up our faith in something better for earthly things that do not last. There's a spiritual battle being fought in our souls and for our souls every day. And into this battle steps a Savior, Jesus Christ. He steps in not to smack us around and and, and force us to follow him. He doesn't try to seduce us either by saying, oh, my ways are better and and subvert us. He comes to make himself more real and more compelling than anything that this world has to offer so that we gladly turn away from the false security of the things of this world and from the fake significance and the self-importance and the fleeting pleasures and that we enter into a kingdom on whose uh, reign the sun will not set. These two kingdoms are in absolute conflict. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Jesus. God's going to eventually humble Babylon and Tyre. We know that from Scripture. But he calls us to live into his kingdom now. To surrender all that we are to him now so that he can create us into his story. So that his story can become our story. I heard that in a song one time. It was great. The last verse in the oracle against Tyre is really surprising. We think God's going to rain judgment on all the dishonest practices of Tyre, and, but God has something greater in mind. Look at verse 18, chapter 23. Tyre, her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and find clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. God didn't say, I'm gonna burn up all your stupid clothes. God says, no, I'm gonna redeem your clothes. I'm gonna use them to clothe my people and they're gonna be beautiful. And you're gonna, doesn't say, quit making clothes. He says, make clothes for the glory of God and for his people. It's a huge difference, isn't it? Ray Ortland says in his commentary, Isaiah looks at our everything has a price culture, our anything-for-money culture, and he sees it redeemed. He sees it made holy to the Lord, devoted to God for the benefit of all who dwell before him. I love that. God doesn't desire violence or destruction. He desires redemption. He desires something better. That redemption is found in the repurposing of everything that we are, our stuff, our economy, even our own lives, What does that mean for us today beyond what we've talked about so far, all these little mini sermons? Let me just close with this. There's a model in these chapters for relating to the world around us. There's a great uh, Presbyterian minister named J. Gresham Machen, and he said there's three ways for Christians to relate to culture. There's three options that we have before us. And we're gonna see that the, the, the first vision is the first option is to be subordinate to culture, to bow down to culture. That view means that the world advances and then tells us how we then should understand things and how we should live in light of culture, that we should adjust to those enlightened views around us of culture. But we know that subjecting Christianity to the culture denies the lordship of Christ. When we baptize people, we say, what's your confession? Jesus Christ is Lord, not culture. Jesus Christ is Lord not anything else. We know that eventually uh, submitting ourselves to the world and bowing to the world destroys not only us, but it destroys Christianity. So that's not gonna work. Second, we could just turn our back on the world. We could just negate the world, see it as a necessary evil. Let's just build a holy huddle here. Let's just, let's just build a commune, and we can just enjoy ourselves here and just get rid of the world. You, you've seen that before, right? Waco, it, it didn't work out well, right? That doesn't end well either, right? We're not called to hide our heads in the sand of culture. We have people here who all, you know, work in secular music. I think that's awesome. We need people in, in secular music. We have people who are lawyers. We need good lawyers. We have people who work in business. That's great. People who are in education in, in, in secular, quote, secular environments. That's great. We need that because we can't turn our back on the world. What did Jesus pray for us in John 17, 18? As you sent me, Father, into the world, so I've sent my disciples into the world. We, we should love the world. God so loved the world that what? He gave his only son for it. He's like, oh, the world's terrible, guys. You, don't, you should just get out of there as soon as you can. That's escapism and it's dangerous. To withdraw from this fallen world is tempting but it's escapism and it's not loving. You turn your back on the world. Who are we to say, ooh, this world's gross. I can't wait to get out of here. I'm not gonna engage it in any way. Not gonna get my hands dirty. That's not at all how God sees the world. The third option then is consecration. What does consecration mean? It means to set apart as holy, to set it apart for a good purpose. Right before Jesus says that he's sent us into the world in John 17, 18, verse 17, he prays to God to sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Then he says, I've sent them into the world, sanctified and sent. That's the point of what Isaiah is saying. We're sanctified in the truth of God, not compromising with the culture, but sent running to the culture in order to be set apart and to set the culture apart. I'm not talking about culture wars. I have no interest in fighting culture wars. That ship has sailed. We were never meant to be a moral majority, but a prophetic minority, speaking the truth in love into a world that desperately needs it. Our education system, healthcare the legal process, our economy, the government, media, the arts. We want to see all of it transformed by God's grace and used for his glory. God doesn't bow to the world, neither does he run from the world. He redeems it. He transforms it through us and through his grace and for his glory. Maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to have been broken and then redeemed, to be put back together by amazing grace. Ray Ortland says, every last petty souvenir of Tyre can be redeemed into something beautiful for God. You know, I hate those tacky tourist gift shops, you know, Gatlinburg, man, they're everywhere. God says every little petty souvenir from Tyre can be redeemed into something meaningful, and productive for God, even you and me. Here's the thing, we can't consecrate those things in our world to God if we're not consecrated ourselves. Are you personally committed to a life of holiness? One that's radically different from the world around us? You know, Austin, Texas has a slogan, keep Austin, what? Weird, keep it weird, we love it being weird. That's true for Christianity too, we should be weird. The things we believe are gonna be increasingly weird to the culture around us, and that's okay. In fact, that's a good thing. Lean into that. We are weird. We believe in a God who was crucified and rose again. That's crazy, but we believe it. I'm betting my life on it. Do you find real freedom and joy in living that new life changed forever by God's grace, or are you more a product of your zip code Does Greenville, South Carolina, determine who you are? Does, you know, I get to live almost in Green Hills, kind of sort of Forest Hills, Green Hills. Does that mean more about who I am or does the word of God? Let's stop bowing to the culture. Let's start bowing to the God who loves us and accepts us more fully than we ever could have dared to dream. Let's also quit dumping on culture and saying it's terrible. Let's run to it. Let's let's embrace it in order to redeem it. Let's allow the shame and the hypocrisy and the wounds that we've been carrying around for too long fall off our shoulders as we allow the Lord to embrace us without holding anything back. Then we can live fully into his kingdom and we can live out the prayer that we just prayed that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done here as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even when you're silent, we have a word from you that is from above, that is holy and inspired. God, forgive us for engaging culture in ways that are not producing the kingdom here. Sometimes we we run to culture and we just embrace it and bow to it. We just wanna be like the world around us. We don't wanna be weird. We don't wanna be different. So we just accommodate and subordinate ourselves to it. God, forgive us when we do the opposite, when we say culture's terrible and we want nothing to do with it, and we try to live our lives with our head in the sand, with blinders on, pretending like we don't see what's going on. God, I pray that you would help us live faithfully as consecrated people who long to see your kingdom come and your will be done in Nashville as it is in heaven. God, in order to do that, we know that we must be consecrated to you by your grace, for your glory, by your Holy Spirit, in your word. God, I pray that we would do that without judgment, without condemnation because you haven't condemned us. None of us have moral high ground from which to address the culture. We're all in the same sinking boat of sin apart from you. But God, maybe we find your grace more compelling than anything this culture has to offer us. And may we run to a broken world with hope and with healing that desperately need it. Confident that we know where all this is headed and that at the last, our Redeemer shall stand upon the earth and we know our Redeemer lives. Lord, we thank you. We pray this in the holy, precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. We're gonna have a time of response now and I would ask you, is is Jesus your story? Is he your song? Is he, when you open your mouth, is that the story that comes out? Do you praise your Savior all the day long? Have you made his story your story? If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd love to talk with you about that. I'll be up front here. You can wear your mask and elbow bump me and tell me what's going on or whatever. I'll be out in the South Lobby too after the service if you want to talk. Maybe you want to join Woodmont Baptist Church as a member through baptism or, or through uh, moving your letter from another church. Whatever the Lord's calling you to do, we're gonna sing, what can wash away my sin? Uh, a lot of work and good effort. No, uh, what can wash away my sin? Being a good person and voting the right way. No, no, that's not what it says. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We proclaim that boldly. It's not attractive in our world to say that. Even my, my theologically robust friends, uh, Penal substitution is kind of going the way of old-fashioned thought, but um, that's what I see in Scripture, and we're going to stand on that, that that Jesus has paid the price for our sins. That that doesn't mean that that we beat ourselves up. It means that we worship and praise and give thanks and live freely. If you long for that, I encourage you to come and talk to me about that now. Whatever it is in your heart that you need to respond to today, may we stand and respond to the Lord as we sing nothing but the blood.